0: reaching from way down here, down here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. from way down here,
1: Welcome to Thread, a podcast designed to explore God's story and lead you into a full life in Christ.
0: Thank you for joining us in this conversation, co-hosted by myself, Hannah Souza, and Dr. David Pochter. Oh, I'm way down
1: here, I get a better view of this boundless world.
0: Hello and welcome back to Thread, a podcast about finding your place in God's story. How are you, Dave, this morning? I'm doing
1: pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. How's life at Harvard?
0: Good. We still have students arriving, orientations about to kick off. So
1: Fantastic. You have a new little plant there. I don't remember seeing your plant before.
0: I do. I treated myself to a bonsai tree. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yes. It doesn't look like a
1: tree, but okay.
0: I know, it looks like that plant, you know in Harry Potter, that thing that they pull out and it screams? I don't know if you remember that.
1: The mandrake.
0: Yes, that's what it looks like. I only
1: know that because my wife was watching that episode this week. I just saw the screaming mandrakes. It was just on or I would not have known. (laughs) (laughs) A screaming
0: mandrake. Yeah, it needs a name. (sighs) We'll figure that out. Do you have any suggestions? I'll check
1: back with you. We'll ask you for a name for your plant.
0: Oh, no. Okay. Next week. Well, <laughs> okay. today is our sixth sixth episode. Yes. In our six. series of seven. <laughs> it's a hard word to pronounce. On our series on God's world created. So last week we jumped into human limitations in Genesis 2 and 3. And today we're covering Genesis 6 to 10 and discussing the flood. So, Dave, how... How should we approach the story of Noah mm. and the flood? I feel like it's a story that we often see in kind of kids kingdom Sunday school classes which now seems interesting to me as I'm reflecting on that but that's it's become almost a children's story cuz it's definitely not child-friendly content. <laughs> Maybe the rainbow is, but right. yeah, everything else. So how important is context for this for this story? Cuz often I think we can treat it in an isolated way.
1: Yeah, for those that are listening and not watching, they're probably not seeing that I'm kind of subtly shaking my head as you're asking that question. It, mm-hmm. this as the last episode as well. These last two episodes, I've just I've done a lot of reading and research. Honestly, I was really trying to figure out how I wanted to talk about the flood, in the in the sense of the meta narrative and the spirituality that is behind this. And I I think the truth of the matter is. And I know we addressed this last time, but I want to reiterate this. We have to treat Genesis 1 through 11 as a literary whole. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The flood narrative, if treated by itself, doesn't tell the important parts of the story, I think. I think it, it has to be held with Genesis 1 and 2 and what started in Genesis 3. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's intent. And we're going to see how important that is. The heart of God, his dream for his relationship with his creation. We're going to see the significance of that and how that plays out. And then in Genesis 3, we see the first act of disobedience. Maybe that's the way the pericope should be named, the first act of disobedience. Mm -hmm. And then the door that opens there, and I don't know that it's necessarily because of Adam and Eve and their act of disobedience that then leads to. But what the story tells us is disobedience now becomes part of mankind's behavior on a regular basis. And we're going to see that kind of really come to this really ugly fruition in this story. Hmm. So we have to hold these tensions when we get into these difficult to understand passages, and the reason I say that this one's difficult to understand is, a lot of Christians, even people I've talked to this last couple of weeks about the fact that we're doing this story, react really strongly to the flood.
0: Hmm.
1: Like it's really hard to understand why would God destroy all of mankind? Like that's yeah, definitely that's the almost immediate visceral reaction that a lot of people have, and I think that's why I think it's so important that we hold this in this Genesis one through eleven narrative. So. I know we're going to keep going back to this. I want to keep saying this over and over again. We have to remember to think theologically and spiritually. We have to hold the tension of what goes on in both of those spaces. So theology is how we think about spiritual things. In this case, it's how we think about our origins and how we think about our human selves. Mm -hmm. It's how we think about our creator and how we think about creation. We talked a lot about that last week. It's how we think about sin, and it's how we think about God's response to sin. Now, we didn't really get to develop this a lot last week in our podcast, but when you have the image of God in the sense that we're created for these amazing, fulfilling, meaningful life, but then we also see on the other side this other important tension as dirt man where sin comes into play and the implications of sin and the damage that sin does. And we have to hold both of those tensions. And we're going to talk about the importance of tensions in just a minute. So we've got theology and how we think about that. That's great. But then we have to talk spirituality. How do we live in response to the things that we're thinking about? How does what I believe shape the way that I engage God and others in the world around me? How does my mm. theology affect my confidence, my humility? I mean, those two things or other spiritual postures, but, but those two things, humility and confidence, we get our confidence from the fact that we're created in the image of God, but we should be reminded humbly about our shortcomings when we're connected to and in touch with our sin. And we have to have both of those, so we have to hold these important truths in tension.
0: Mm. So I think I get that these passages bring have a lot of tensions in them. What What do you mean? Or can you speak a little bit more to holding tensions, kind of being able to sit with these tensions just in life?
1: Yeah, we've we've actually been talking about these kind of more implicitly over these last 10 episodes, these important tensions, I think maybe it's good to kind of explicitly talk about these. So one of them that we talked about was the creator and the creation. You don't really understand the creator's heart and intent until you see creation created. Hmm. And creation really needs its relationship with the creator to understand its role and place. So we have to hold those together to understand them. We've talked here already about being created in the image of God and being created from the dirt and the tension that that holds. So in in one sense, we're image bearers. In the other sense, we're sinful. And if we lean one way or the other, we actually get it wrong, right? If we walk around just Mm -hmm. thinking we're image bearers and we aren't aware of the power of sin and the damage that it does and we don't address it and talk about it and deal with it, we really miss a huge aspect of what's going on and and vice versa. If we walk around like I'm just a sinful person, there's no good in me. You know, we we lose sight of the confidence we should have as image bearers. So, you know, these are are important sin and grace, God's intent. And this is the one that really starts playing out in this one. God's intent for humanity and the reality of how humanity behaves. And I think that's what we're going to start seeing here playing out in this episode
0: so you by holding tension it's kind of holding being able to hold both and not overly emphasize one lens over the other so
1: not overemphasize
0: image bearer over dirt man as you said but kind of have a coexistence
1: scholars teachers theologians they get they often get an angle that they want to talk about or a thing that they think is important and they they we can get unbalanced, right?
0: Mm.
1: They just want to talk about being image bearers and how we're image bearers. And I get it. Sometimes we we're reacting to a culture in which we've overemphasized the other side and we're trying to bring that's balance. Right. Yeah. And and that's true and it's important, but we have to we can't lose the balance when we're responding to the imbalance. Hmm. So you're right. So we can't understand the creator without watching the relationship with the creation. Human beings are image bearers, but they're also deeply corrupt and sinful. There's an immense amount of evil that's done by human beings, and yet human beings can be incredible models of faithfulness in the midst of evil.
0: Hmm.
1: Where there's sin, God offers grace and hope. And all of this directly ties into the story that we're talking about today. God intends covenant relationship and intimacy and freedom for us, but the sad reality is that most of creation does not embrace Yahweh's vision for their life. So, that's all going to play out today. And I, I think that's that's why I think this has to be held together in this Genesis 1-11 through 11 piece. There's one other important thing here, I think, for today's episode. And it's not as much a tension as, as it is a contrast that most readers in the contemporary world wouldn't be aware of unless they've read some of these other stories and i know that a lot of people haven't had a chance to read some of these stories and here's what i mean in the background of when genesis in this case 6 7 8 the flood narrative was written it didn't enter the scene for the israelites in a vacuum in the sense that this is the first flood narrative as a matter of fact, for hundreds of years, there were other narratives that were being circled. So, when Genesis, when the Genesis flood narrative was written, other creation narratives and flood narratives had already existed. So, this one's being written in the context of other stories that had already been floating around.
0: Hmm. Yes, I took a class on Genesis last semester, actually, and part of it was reading the epic of Gilgamesh, which I think is one of those mm. ancient flood narratives. But I remember encountering these other stories and thinking, okay, so there's like corroboration here, so this must have happened. But I think a lot of people can, when we think about the flood, get fixated on this idea of did it happen? And I know just a quick Google search, there are so many articles about archaeological finds that are speaking to this or... I saw one recently about evidence of the flood in the Grand Canyon and fossil findings. And I think we can really hone in on this idea of truth. Did this happen? Do you think, is it wrong to kind of approach this story with that lens or, yeah, with those questions?
1: It, no, I think they're important questions for our, again, for our contemporary person. They can be important <laughs> questions, but, but the problem is if we overemphasize it, we can miss what was actually being communicated. So for the ancient people, the question of whether there was a flood or not was never the question. The question was, what did it mean?
0: Is that because it was a given that it happened or it just wasn't?
1: I would assume it's a given because everyone was writing stories about it as if it were something that took place. So, so that's, mm-hmm. but, but again, that's, That's what the modern reader wants, right? The modern reader is like, well, wait a minute, what (laughs) happened and what did it actually look like and how big was it? Those are are all questions that,
0: Mm.
1: okay, those are great, but what's in front of us, what really matters when we compare these other narratives with this narrative, it brings out a very different way of looking at this. And that's what I want us to focus on. The story as it stands in contrast to these other stories and what does it say what's its intent when it's telling this story to us what's the spiritual realities and truths that it's trying to draw out so there's three pretty significant ones that had circulated there was the epic of Anthrahasis. that one was around 18th century bc it was an akkadian epic you already mentioned the Epic of Gilgamesh, similar time period, twenty second to twenty first BC. Fascinating story, really well written. Yeah. Uh, you know, they actually scholars say it may be one of the greatest literary accomplishments that comes from Babylonian soil. It, it's, and it really is. It's a beautiful story, but you, you definitely when you're when you're reading it, you see the the mythology in it the exaggeration you also see and we'll get to this even with the gods like the way that it communicates about the gods to try to explain our origins there's a projection that happens because as human beings are crafting stories to tell their origins they can't help but to project the view of the gods from what they understand as human behavior so the Mm. gods are going to behave the same way that we behave Right. And then the other one is the Enuma Elish, also, you know, 18th century, somewhere between the 18th and 11th century. That one's a little bit harder to pin down. But all of these address different aspects of a flood narrative. And some of them have a lot of similarities and parallels to what we read in Genesis 6.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I, well, now I'm thinking I need to name my plant Gilgamesh. That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) Okay. But I think I. When I read that narrative, I think it's interesting, the similarities with the biblical story. But then also, you're right, there are these key differences. Gilgamesh, for those that don't know, briefly, he's this king in pursuit of immortality and he finds this character Utnapishtim, I think is how you pronounce it. But he's kind of meant to be this almost like the biblical Noah. He's this guy who gained immortality through building a ship to weather this great deluge that destroys mankind and he brings animals on the ship and also releases birds to find land when they land so those are some of the similarities but i i think the depiction of the gods cuz it's gods plural in the gilgamesh epic versus the biblical god is startling mm-hmm. in the gilgamesh narrative They are very unpredictable, even the fact that the flood begins as a result of them being annoyed by the noise of human beings, which during orientation, I can relate to that, the noise of the students. But it's interesting that that was kind of the motivation, just this irritation with mankind. It wasn't like a motivation for a concern for human morality or justice at all, which is one of the significant contrasts, I think, with the biblical narrative.
1: Yeah, that's the power of what's happening here and and I I think some people, you know, they can kind of freak out, wait a minute, this isn't the only flood narrative. No, there's lots of other flood narratives, but the the way that these stories are told and what they bring out are so radically different. So you just mm. brought this this concept up that in these other origin stories the gods are portrayed as petty and angry and frustrated with humans. They bicker with each other. They're unaware mm. of what each other are doing. They actively work against each other, often behind their backs. Right. Of course, you know, why would they be written that way? Because that's you know, the way human beings behave. But this is where the power of our narrative is so different. Mm. When Yahweh tells the story, we see a God who loves in ways that we could not imagine create. Or, right by ourselves. Hmm. Like, who would think that our Creator has this much love and grace and compassion and empathy and tireless patience? So, Yahweh is completely different. And that's the point of this. I mean, it really brings out no, the way that you view the origins of the world and the relationship with the gods is not right. This is the way it is. Yahweh loves and partners with his creation. Yahweh shows grace and mercy. Yahweh binds himself in covenant to us. Yahweh finds and blesses, that's the power of this story, finds and blesses the righteous in the midst of human depravity. So the whole world can be evil and wicked, and every inclination of their heart might be going the wrong direction, but God sees the faithful in the midst of that. So Mm -hmm. Yahweh is not aloof or distant, but rather involved and proactive. So we have to remember where to put the emphasis on the story, right? Yeah, What matters and where the emphasis comes, comes from that context of Genesis 1 through 11. So we have to check in now. If we look at this in context of Genesis 1 through 11, where are we at? God has created the world, he's called humankind to be his faithful covenant partner. He desired unity and harmony and goodness. It is not happening that way by the time we get to this story. Hmm. Creation has refused God's grand gestures and this fracture is the bra- is the backdrop of this flood narrative. Hmm. So it brings to the surface that Yahweh has to change course. So the original intent is not happening. The covenant relationship has proven to be unattainable. Yahweh will have to build his hope and intent. Rather than with the whole of creation, he's going to have to focus now on a subset of creation. I don't
0: know if it's crude to say it's like a plan B. This kind of narrative that we see here—would would you can you phrase it that way?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't see it as a plan B. I see it as intent and reality, and it's important that we see God's intent because one of the powerful things about this is God is so committed to His expectation that He will not drop it. So, okay. I want to have this covenantal relationship with all of my creation. All of my creation will not respond to me. I'm going to narrow in on a small subset of creation for the purpose of eventually returning to the vision of we can actually connect to all of creation. And so Mm. you see that even from the beginning in these narratives in the Old Testament, God narrows in on Noah, God narrows in on Abraham, God starts to build a nation from scratch, hoping that from the ground up, he can build a covenantal relationship with them, that they're raised to understand the importance of that covenant. But the intent was never just for Israel. It was always so that Israel could become a light to the nations.
0: Hmm. So it wasn't it favoritism was, so much as this think, is the vehicle through which I'll reach all people, exactly.
1: Right, That's exactly right. It, it was never about showing favorites. It was about God never bending on his expectation of what he intended all along. And if he couldn't get it to happen out of the gate the way he created it to happen, then he would find other ways to fulfill and see his vision come to fruition. And I think that's what's so powerful at work here So when we take this genesis narrative out and we look at it by itself and we don't see that, right? I mean, we can get indicators of it, which we'll get into some of the text here now. But when we actually step back and we keep the meta narrative in front of us, we realize, oh, wait, this is just one small episode of a larger narrative. And that's what gives us this understanding. And so we come back to this importance of this type of literature. What kind of literature is this? This is proclamation. This is Yahweh announcing what will be done to this fractured world in a way that he can act to save us, to bring salvation. This Mm -hmm. is him warning us of the implications of our disobedience, but also providing a way through it and we're going to start seeing even the imagery of the flood that starts playing out into the New Testament and resurrection and all the things that it will come to mean. So, in this in this narrative of the flood, there's there's a repeat. Now, we see that in Genesis 1 and 2. We see a creation narrative in Genesis 1. We see a repeat in Genesis 2. We actually see a similar pattern in this flood narrative. We see this kind of setting put together, Genesis 6, 5 to 8, and then we see a parallel retelling of the story with some different wording in Genesis 6, 11 through 13. I think it'd be really good for us to just sit in this text. So Hannah, maybe you could read the first Mm -hmm. and then we can read the second and we'll see the similarities, but also recognize a few differences.
0: Okay, so Genesis 6, 5 to 8. And in Genesis 6, 11 to 13, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled of violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth.
1: Yeah, so these texts describe human beings as wicked, hmm. evil, Corrupt, full of violence. In other words, the creation has refused its creator. And so Yahweh in this proclamation proclaims this uncompromising declaration that he will act. And we see these this repetition of this kind of decided response in Genesis 6, 7, verse 13, verse 17. I think it'd be powerful just to read those three verses Hmm. back to back to back if you don't mind.
0: Yeah. I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. So
1: Yahweh holds an expectation for the world, and he is unwilling to abandon it. Violence is not okay. What the human race has become is not okay. So in addition to this outward act of defiance that we read about in these texts, we also get an insight into the heart, and we see a contrast of the human heart and God's heart. So it says that humans have hostile hearts. They're inclined towards evil. God is not an angry tyrant as we've described as this is what's so different about this narrative as these other flood narratives portray the gods as angry tyrants. Yahweh's heart is troubled, deeply troubled. He grieves over this alienation. So this covenantal dream with his creation has no prospect of fulfillment in its current state. So Yahweh's not angered, but he's grieved. Yahweh's not enraged, but saddened. Mm. And so we see this, we see the heart of God towards what he intends, and he has to find a way right. to make it happen.
0: Mm. Yes, It reminds me actually of when we spoke about Genesis 3 last week and how the initial response of God after sin and did was... And after Adam and Eve sinned, was to ask, "Where are you?" Um, and he w- was looking for them. Of course, he knew where they were, but it, even that question seems to be him speaking to that idea of you've strayed from my intent for you. Which, yeah, similarly, seems to speak more or seems a response more of sadness than than anger, as you said.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I I think that's what this flood narrative is, is even centered around. It's. The real center of this story is about the grief and the grace of God. This is a, a story trying to help us understand that God will not sit by and allow, he, He's fighting to protect the relationship. He's fighting to have what He intended for us. And as we will see here, and as we'll see over and 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 over, and over again, is that grace is necessary. I mean, we didn't get a chance to get to the end of Genesis 3 uh, of what happened as a result of the disobedience. But you see, God's grace immediately meet Adam and Eve, covering them mm. with animal skins. And even the act of of removing them from the garden and putting them outside of access to the tree of eternal life was God didn't want not want eternal life to happen in that state of disobedience. Hmm. Eternal life wow. has to have a different look to it, right? It's got to restore somehow the innocence. It's got to restore the intimacy. And so eternal life is put on hold until that problem can be resolved and then eternal life can be restored. And that's what we see playing out in the meta narrative.
0: Hmm. I hadn't considered actually that idea of them even being removed from the garden as a as a mercy, as an I guess or a sign of grace. I think it could be so clearly seen through that lens of punishment or withholding. But yeah, this reframing I think is helpful. I love that phrase even you said the flood narrative is centered around the grief and grace of God. Cause so I think typically, now I can feel this, that it can be a narrative that seems For many, it centers around, oh, this is God's frustration and termination, even with his creation, which can be the dominant way in which we view this story.
1: Yeah, God is not uh, aloof. God is connected. This is a heart-to-heart brokenness, a relational pain that he is intent on facilitating a resolve for. And God will find a way to build this eternal bond with human beings. It just mm. continues to take on more and more effort on our Creator's part to convince us <laughs> to build mm. this. It's this eternal pursuit. It's And that's the meta, that's the big picture story.
0: Could, I don't know, even thinking about this idea of their removal from the Garden of Eden being a mercy, might the death also of the mankind, I guess, in this story be considered a mercy if we're reframing the story?
1: absolutely uh, death is grace hmm. death is grace
0: well, as much as
1: it is so the beauty of this the beauty of what we have in this earth is a taste of the eternal right so this idea of intimacy of as paul says now we see clear or now we see partially faintly then we shall see face to face or presence to presence. We're gonna get in. We'll get into that a lot when we get to the First Corinthians piece, and we talk more about spirituality and development and growth. But this idea that w- we can taste a part of the kingdom of God now, we can experience the relationships and the commitments and the loyalties and the all the wonderful things that we have, but they're all just a shadow of what is to come. And so, yeah. death becomes a grace to break the final barrier that keeps us from the ultimate presence of God. And so one of the things that we see from Genesis 3, even to this past to these passages here, is in some senses, when when the serpent said you will not die, they spiritually died. But then we also see physical death and -and so-and-so lived so many years and had so many children and they died and they died and they died Hmm. and they died. That's the act of grace.
0: Hmm.
1: That's the act of grace ending This brokenness that we have on this earth to ultimately restore something much bigger in eternity. Hmm.
0: Wow, Um, it's interesting reading this. Reading commentaries on this story that I didn't realize that in Hebrew Noah's name means rest, and that's the kind of the name that Lamech gives him in Genesis five, envisioning Noah as bringing this rest from the curse of the ground after the fall in Genesis two, but. I think it's also interesting after the flood, that same word is then used when it says the ark came to rest on the mountains mm. of Ararat and that word play that we see in the Hebrew. But it does seem a foreshadowing of this greater rest to come that kind of Noah is symbolic of, I guess.
1: So that's, that's a huge part of the power of this story. This story really becomes a prototype for so many ways of us thinking about what is to come. God, in his mercy, can search the earth and find someone who's faithful. God will find a way to rescue and save. Of course, water is the mechanism. We're going to see, you know, we can look mm. at 1 Peter here in a minute, but we even see that connection to baptism, right? right. Water becomes the mechanism of salvation. But in, in another sense, we also see this As a resurrection, as a new start, as a new beginning, right? God allows death and then he allows life to come from death. This Mm. is the seed that has to die in order for life to come on the other side. And that's what resurrection comes to mean for us, both in that physical sense of we will resurrect ourselves, but in the spiritual sense of being able to resurrect from the way we live to a new way of living. And a lot of that even gets tied up when we look at the New Testament writers. I mean, you know, we see in Hebrews 11, the faithfulness of Noah is brought out as, hmm. as as this idealism, right? In the middle of everything that we can see around us and the corruption and the evil, God still sees our faithfulness. Noah's faithfulness was seen by God. But then when we get into this First Peter section, we even see those typologies play out. In connecting baptism and water and resurrection. Actually, it'd probably be good for us to, mm. to look at that.
0: Yeah. So it's First Peter 3, 19-21. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, so you see these themes all get tied together here. The importance of how we see this story and the role that it will play in our understanding of how God saves. God in his heart desires to have this covenant with us. God rescues Noah through water. God rescues us through water. We see this connection, even with water and the resurrection. You know, as I said, Noah, in a sense, was a resurrection. But even what we see in Romans 6, that baptism parallels the death, burial, and resurrection for our own spiritual understanding and participation. And mm-hmm. so, it's just powerful to see God's intent play out for centuries and how much God pursues us in the midst of our own evil inclinations that bring wickedness and anger. So that is the power of what's happening here. So we're now in this Genesis 1 through 11. We've moved through most of this. We actually have one episode left. We're going to end on mankind's Incredible determination to still go their own way, <laughs> in the words of Fleetwood <laughs> <theme> Mac <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And to build this Tower of Babel or Babel, uh, however we pronounce that. But we'll talk about what that means and that instinct, that instinct to build community without God or to build or to pursue or do without God and that constant tension that we'll then see continue to play out to the scriptures. So next time, Anna, next time
0: you and Gilgamesh,
1: the plant and (laughs) I will talk (laughs) about Genesis eleven. Are we calling this thing Gilgamesh?
0: I guess so. Yeah, it's been proclaimed. Is this
1: it's been proclaimed. Okay.
0: We'll see if anything that comes
1: up. (laughs) Oh wow. It's it its name may change. Okay. Well we'll (laughs) see you and Gilgamesh next week as we talk about the Tower. Okay. Okay. We'll Thanks, you Dave.
0: Bye.
1: Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining this Thread conversation.
0: We're more than a podcast. Check out threadpodcast.org for more immersive content.
1: I'm on here, I get a better view of this boundless world than i